I'm Jonathan Capehart and welcome to Capehart. The big dates of the Civil Rights Movement are 1963 for the March on Washington, 1965 for the Voting Rights Act, 1968 for the assassination of Martin Luther King. But in a new book, former Newsweek editor and former NBC News Washington bureau chief Mark Whitaker zeroes in on 1966 in Saying It Loud, 1966, the year Black Power challenged the Civil Rights Movement. In this conversation, first recorded for Washington Post Live on February 8th, Whitaker argues that 1966 not only forever changed history, but it also changed the way in which black Americans viewed their lives, their beauty, and their power. You specifically zero in on 1966. What was it about that year that inspired you to write this book? Well, you know, I, I started writing uh, this book about the Black Power Movement, uh, and initially I thought it was going to, the book would span, you know, six, seven years, maybe even a decade. But once I started doing the research and the reporting, so much happened in 1966 uh, that, you know, we, we remember the pieces of it, but we don't, we haven't, you know, I think most people don't realize it all happened in one year. So uh, Stokely Carmichael, uh, takes over as chairman of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, deposing John Lewis, and takes it in this much more uh, militant uh, direction. Uh, in the middle of uh, the Meredith March through Mississippi that, uh, that summer, he uh, unleashes the chant of Black Power. And all of a sudden, it becomes the thing that everybody's talking about in the press uh, and in Black America. Um, in the uh, fall of, of 1966, uh, the Black Panther Party um, uh, is formed uh, in Oakland, California, uh, led by Huey Newton uh, and Bobby Seale. It was the year that Martin Luther King tried to take uh, his version of the civil rights movement north to Chicago um, and met fierce resistance there. And on the cultural front, it was the year that uh, Afros became popular, Daishikis. And finally, uh, in December, uh, at the very end of the year, the first Kwanzaa was celebrated in Los Angeles. So an, just an amazing amount of things happened in that one year, and that's and that's the story I tell in the book. So you, you know, you you mentioned two people, Martin Luther King and Stokely Carmichael. You see them there um, together on the on the cover of your book. Talk about that photo because these two men were the personification of the, of the philosophical divide that arose in the movement then, right? Yes, they are. Now, that photo was taken in Philadelphia, Mississippi, uh, where the three civil rights uh, uh, workers were killed um, in during Freedom Summer uh, two years earlier in 1964. They had returned there during the Meredith March. Uh, and the Meredith March brought them together. So this is uh, it was named after James Meredith, who had been um, the black student who integrated the, the University of Mississippi in 1963. In 1966, he's a, he's a law student at, at, uh, in New York at Columbia, but he goes down south to, uh, uh, to, to conduct a solo march across the state um, in, in June. And on the second day of the march, he gets shot by a white supremacist uh, on the highway. He's hospitalized. And the other civil rights leaders, the major civil rights leaders at the time, uh, decide to, to, to go down to Mississippi to, um, to carry on the march. Um, so for two weeks, uh, Dr. King and Stokely Carmichael were side by side marching 
uh, across the state actually bonded, became very close. This is one of the the, the mis misnomers that I that I explode in the book was the the press as soon as Stokely emerged on the scene, the press uh, portrayed him as the antithesis of Dr. King, uh, his nemesis. In fact, on a personal level, they they got along quite well. They had a lot of affection for each other. Uh, the problem, as far as Dr. King was concerned, was that Stokely was speaking for not just for himself, but for a restlessness uh, about um, both the uh, the aims and the tactics of the uh, of of the previous uh, uh, generation of civil rights leaders. Um, that you know, I think King would have had to contend with you know, no matter who the spokesman was. You know, as I hear you talk about the the real behind the scenes relationship between Dr. King and Mr. Carmichael, I, I, it brought me back to, um, I remember a while back, someone, years ago, someone wrote a book about the relationship between Dr. King and Malcolm X and how as the two got older, um, they were uh, when they were younger, they were here. But as they got older, they started meeting uh, in the middle. Would you say that the relationship between King and X um, is sort of mirrored in the relationship between King and Carmichael? Well, the, di the difference, and, and you're referring to the, the book by my, my good friend, Peniel Joseph, uh, uh, a scholar at the uh, University of Texas. I recommend that book highly. Um, uh, yes, well, the difference was that actually King and Malcolm X only met once. Uh, uh, Dr. King and Stokely knew each other quite well. They knew each other even before 1966. Uh, uh, Stokely had, had actually chauffeured him around when he came down uh, south while, while uh, Stokely was an, an organizer, uh, an organizer there. Um, you know, but uh, look, I mean, the, the, the fascinating thing about Dr. King was by, you know, so up until 1965, he's the undisputed leader of the civil rights movement. Um, he has a Nobel Prize. He has all of these sort of victories under his belt, as, as it were. Uh, you referred to them earlier. Um, and then in 1966, not only does he have to deal with uh, stronger white resistance uh, to uh, all the gains that he had made, um, uh, a, a president, Lyndon Johnson, who felt unappreciated for the things that he had done uh, and also was was angry at King for his opposition uh, to the Vietnam War. But for the first time, he has serious, uh, if not opposition, criticism um, from within the civil rights movement um, from this new black power generation. And he spends the last two years of his life until 1968, as you said, um, dealing with this sort of being attacked uh, from both sides. Um, you know, you write in the book about Carmichael and um, what he felt, what he thought about the, the death, the assassination of Malcolm X. And you write, Carmichael also sensed immediately that Malcolm's death wasn't a loss only for black America. If white authorities had had anything to do with organizing or turning a blind eye to a murder plot, Carmichael thought, they would come to regret it in dealing with a new generation of blacks who were no longer prepared to take directions from Dr. King and other, elder, uh, other older civil rights leaders. So in, 60, so in 66, we're seeing the cleaving, uh, a generational cleave happening. 
Absolutely. And, and you know, I'm so glad that you spotlighted my, Malcolm X, because when I when as I was when I first started writing this book and I told them, you know, that the subject was black power, people would say, oh, yeah, Malcolm X. And I, I would say, no, well, in fact, Malcolm X, you know, was dead by then. He was assassinated a year earlier in 1965. But in fact, he ends up being a major figure in this. book. Uh, why? One, uh, it it. Uh, Malcolm became even more famous in death once his autobiography was published. The hardcover was published in 1965, but in 1966, the paperback edition of that book comes out. And it's really at that point that it becomes uh, affordable for people of all races and generations and so forth and becomes a bestseller for years, for years after that. But also because all of the major figures uh, uh, of, of in, in, in my book in 1966. Stokely Carmichael, Huey Newton, Eldridge Cleaver, uh, Ron Karenga, who, who, who uh, was the person who, who you know, uh, uh, started Kwanzaa, um, the, the leaders of the Black Arts Movement, uh, uh, Amira Baraka, he was still known as Leroy Jones uh, at that time. All of them worshiped uh, Malcolm X. Uh, they all talk about how they were trying to uh, carry on his legacy. Now, the interesting question is, I'm not sure what they did was what he necessarily would have done. Um, I think he had a maturity and a discipline, particularly at the end of his life, that I think they, because they were younger and more immature, lacked. Um, but, um, you know, even in death, he's, he's, he's one of the major figures in this book. You know, all correct me if I'm wrong, all the names you listed, um, Amir Baraka, Huey Newton, um, all of those folks were in the North, yes. the geographic North. And yes. so talk about um, the geographic divide that is now revealed in 1966. Yeah, so this is another thing that really changes that year, which is essentially the battlefronts shift to the North. You know, until then, as you mentioned, all of the major civil rights uh, uh, battles and fights that we remember had happened in the South, in Birmingham, in Selma, in Montgomery. Um, uh, all of a sudden, you know, you have King himself trying to take the movement north to Chicago. Uh, you have a Stokely uh, 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 Carmichael, who had grown up in New York, uh, taking over SNCC. And then you have uh, the Panther Party, um, uh, Huey Newton and Bobby Seale and Eldridge Cleaver starting the Panther Party in Oakland, California on the West Coast. Now, what was significant about, about this generation? One, they were less rooted in the church and in sort of deferential Southern culture, frankly, um, than, um, uh, and it, but they also were children of the Great Migration, this, this, this historic exodus. Uh, their parents and grandparents had come from the uh, South to the North expecting a better life, expecting to get jobs, access to housing and so forth. And for most of them, you know, those dreams had been shattered and they had ended up in, um, in, in, in uh, neighborhoods, urban neighborhoods in the North that became, you know, more and more segregated and more and more depressed. Um, and um, so uh, they, they weren't really buying King's idea that, uh, that white America was ready for integration because their parents had come north expecting to, to find that and had found the opposite. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, as um, Isabel Wilkerson 
uh, notes in her fantastic book, The Warmth of Other Suns, with six million African-Americans over a generation leaving the South and going to the North. So at the, at the start, um, you know, we play that reel um, leading into our interview, and there was a, a Stokely Carmichael leading that Black Power uh, chant, a call and response. And we, let's talk about the term Black Power. First, the impact of that term, Black Power, on African Americans. Well, you know, it's interesting. So, so, so that happens in the middle of the uh, the Meredith March. Um, it was actually another SNCC organizer named Willie Ricks who had really been road testing that slogan and was encouraging Stokely uh, to start using it. Uh, but um, I, so, so the only story that was written immediately was on the Associated Press, but it was picked up the next day by over 200 newspapers. And all of a sudden you see the, the, the slogan black power in headlines, you know, across America that three days later, Stokely Carmichael was booked on Face the Nation for the mm -hmm. first time. Uh, every, everywhere King goes, Dr. King goes, he's asked, well, what do you think about black power? What does it mean? You know, what's your response? So it shows you just the power of a slogan. I mean, we see this today with Black Lives Matter. Um, uh, it can, it, you know, a slogan itself can become a galvanizing force. Uh, the press immediately assumed the worst about black power, thought it meant violence and, and, um, and so forth. Um, but for black people, it had a double meaning. It had a political meaning, which we can talk more about, but it also had a cultural and a psychological meaning. Um, this idea that uh, black folks didn't have to just sort of, you know, be deferential, not only deferential to white people, but sort of have a kind of a black version of white society, which frankly is something you kind of saw in a lot of black social life uh, up until that point. And it stood for the idea that, you know, we can celebrate our blackness. Um, I talked to my former uh, Newsweek uh, colleague, Vern Smith, uh, who had grown up in Natchez, Mississippi, uh, went to San Francisco State where the push for black studies began. And the way he put it, you know, nobody could, could put it better as far as, as far as I'm concerned. He said to me, and he was, you know, right there on the front lines at San Francisco State in 1966. He said it was like a born again experience. We were no longer Negroes. Wow. Um, real quickly, talk about the 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 impact politically of of the phrase black power on African Americans. Well, you know, again, uh, they there was a lot of debate and confusion about exactly what it meant. And frankly, uh, as I point out in the book, uh, Stokely Carmichael and others did not always do the best job of really uh, explaining uh, to white America, uh, to a very defensive and alarmed white America, exactly uh, what it meant. Um, but it stood for a couple of things. Um, it didn't st stand initially for violence, uh, violent confrontation, although honestly later, on it, it did more, particularly when Eldridge Cleaver, by default, took over the Panthers when when Newton and Seal went to went to jail. But it stood for the idea that the um, blacks had a right, first of all, to defend themselves when attacked. Um, that's one. 
The other which uh, was that was a much more purely political dimension was Stokely Carmichael had been an organizer uh, in the South, um, in, in Mississippi, uh, during the heyday of the early heyday of SNCC, Freedom Summer 1964, organizing blacks to register to vote. But Stokely realized that particularly in states like Mississippi and Alabama, registering black folks registering to vote really would only get them so far because who could they vote for? Well, you know, the the the, the racist segregationist white supremacist Democratic Party was in total control of the South at that point. Um, so he organized an effort um, starting in 1965 into 1966 to uh, to organize in a tiny little impoverished uh, uh, county called Lowndes County in Alabama, where blacks were overwhelmingly in a numerical majority, but no blacks had been allowed to vote in 60 years. He had the idea that if you could register enough black voters, they could form their own party and then elect their own officials. So the sheriff could be black um, and they wouldn't have to worry about white sheriffs who allowed the Ku Klux Klan to, to operate with, with impunity. So, and he actually succeeded in creating this party, having a nominating convention, which happened in the spring of, of, of 1966. Um, and it was an amazing feat. The problem was he then assumed, well, we can do this everywhere. And, you know, we're gonna go in every place where black people you know, uh, have uh, have strength in numbers. We're going to organize them, where they're going to form their own political party. They're going to elect their own candidates. And honestly, as impressive as what he did in Lowndes County was, it was way too premature for him to assume that he could do that do that elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Now, the impact of the phrase "black power" on white Americans. Okay, so this is the other reason why ultimately I decided to, to write a book just about 1966. Because as I was, you know, re recreating everything that happened in Black America, I realized that 1966 is an absolutely crucial turning point in, uh, in white America and in the politics uh, of white America. Um, and again, you know, everybody, you mentioned 1968, everybody thinks about, you know, Richard Nixon getting elected and that being kind of the beginning of the, 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 the turn in the, uh, in, the, in the Republican Party and the conservative movement that eventually leads to Ronald Reagan and even, you know, eventually to Donald Trump. Um, in fact, it started in 1966. In 1964, uh, LBJ, Lyndon Baines Johnson had been elected in a historic landslide against Barry Goldwater. Um, uh, it was so decisive, both in the presidential vote, but also in Democratic control of the House and the Senate and state houses, that pundits were saying that the Republican Party was finished for a generation. What happens in, 19, in the midterm election in 1966, largely on the strength of a white backlash uh, uh, vote against black power, uh, against, you know, uh, a second summer of, of urban uh, unrest in the North. Um, uh, there, the, uh, there is a, a huge turn towards the Republican Party. They have all these pickups in, in the House, um, in governor's races. Ronald Reagan is, uh, is elected for the first time as uh, governor of California. 
Um, uh, in Georgia, he was he was a Democrat, but Lester Maddox, who was like an out and out white supremacist, uh, is elected governor there. George Wallace, uh, who couldn't run because of term limits, he ran his wife, who was a total total novice, and she won in a landslide. And everybody, you know, that positioned him to run for president in 1968. And Richard Nixon, it was really in 1966, after losing the white, losing the presidential race in 1960, and then being humiliated uh, by losing the governor's race in California, um, he realizes, hey, maybe uh, I could run for president again in 1968. Um, so. Uh, it becomes this hinge moment uh, in American politics as well, all driven or largely driven by the racial issue. You, you know, it, and you know, as you as I read that that um, in the book and listening to you talk about it now, I'm reminded that in President Obama's uh, memoir, the first of two parts, uh, A Promised Land, he writes that um, remember the beer summit. And yes. the arrest of you know, Harvard professor Skip Gates at his own home, and um, and the president said at a press conference, you know, at, was asked about it, and he said he thought that the Cambridge police acted stupidly. President Obama writes in his book that his white support plummeted after that and never recovered in the two terms he spent as president of the United States, and that just goes to show um, that. These things, for every advance, there's always a backlash. It seems. No, no, and we've we've learned that, and 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 you know, I do think that people are more aware of that. They've gone back. They've studied the backlash against Reconstruction, which leads to Jim Crow and mm -hmm. so forth. But but while we're on the subject of police, okay, so talk about, you know, a kind of, you know, this endless endless loop of of, of American history. Um, uh, every single, almost every single major incident, and a lot of my book, um, you know, I, 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 I walk you through all of these kind of decisive moments during the year, turning points that happen in different places. So many of them, in one way or another, involved uh, police violence and, 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 um, uh, and police abuse of their authority in dealing, in dealing with the Black uh, community. I mean, arguably, the the first Black Panther Party. I, I neglected to say that actually that that experiment that Stokely did with the Black Party in 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 Alabama, their their emblem was the Black Panther. That's where the Black Panther started. I mean, the the Huey Newton got it from them. Um, but um, you know, they were the, the idea ultimately there was that they could elect a black sheriff because you know they had uh, the folks there, the black folks there. Had been the subject of such, uh, you know, mistreatment um, uh, by 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 white uh, police authorities. Uh, the 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 West Coast Panthers. I mean, they had this famous ten point program, which they wrote uh, in the fall in October of 1966, and you know, a lot of people know about that. But but really, of those ten points, the one that they were really focused on was uh, was police uh, and Huey Newton. Um, a really interesting sort of largely self-taught guy had discovered that California law, um, he spent all this time in law libraries, uh, that uh, allowed at the time uh, open carry of guns. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, you could, you could carry around guns as long as they were, you know, visible. 
And he said, okay, well, what we're going to do is we're going to get some guns and we're just going to kind of like, you know, go around Oakland and keep an eye on the police. And every time we see them interacting with black folks on the street in a way that we think, you know, got, could get out of hand, we're just going to stand across the street and just stand there and watch them, let them know that we're here and we've got their eye, our eyes on them. Uh, it wasn't a crazy idea. This had been done in Watts and other places uh, before them. The difference was now they were uh, now they were carrying guns. So, um, you know, and, and and it's and it you know it's just so tragic that we have not found a way uh, after all of these years uh, to deal with this because we have so many problems in terms of race in America. But the problem in terms of the police and the way that the police, and now not just white police, but even black police mm -hmm. uh, interact uh, with black communities is still a disgrace. You know, and and the Tyree Nichols case in, in Memphis, Tennessee, the one you're referring to with the five black police officers um, beat him and he died, um, died later, uh, it speaks to not the race of the cops, but the culture of the cops. That, that, to my mind, explains it. Of course, you and I get to talking and we're running out of time, but you are you know, f a former Newsweek editor, former um, head of MSNBC. Uh, I think I remember that right. At least we've had- Washington Bureau Chief of NBC. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Washington Bureau Chief of NBC News. So you're a media man. Uh, I would you know, talk about the role of the media uh, real uh, as quickly as you can, the role of the media in fostering the impressions that the American people had of this pivotal moment, particularly when it comes to Stokely Carmichael and the burgeoning Black Power movement. Well, I'm glad you. I'm glad you focused on that because obviously I'm I'm fascinated in that subject. I think they the media played a huge role. Uh, I think that they mischaracterized, frankly. Um, a lot of what Stokely was talking about in, in Black Power. Uh, but I think, as I said before, and as I show in the book, I think that he um, did not handle the media well. Um, he he spent a lot more time sort of provoking them and goading them than really trying to win them over or persuade them. And uh, I think it's actually a lesson. I think of, there are many lessons that can be learned for this book for activists today. But one of them is the press is real. Um, uh, the impact that the press coverage has uh, on how your movement is perceived is real. Um, it doesn't mean that you have to, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, you, it, you know, it doesn't mean that 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 you know you can't be strong in your message, uh, uh, but uh, you have to be clear in your message in dealing with uh, in with dealing with the press. And uh, we, we have a couple minutes left. Talk about an, another lesson um, that you, you write about in the book is this idea that the, Bla the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, you know, the current iteration was all about decentralized leadership. That wasn't, isn't exactly, you know, built for longevity. No, look, I and and you know, I I interviewed Alicia Garza in, in in 2020 in the midst of the of those historic protests that summer, and and she was trying to like argue that the Black Lives Matter movement didn't need a leader, and and obviously you know there have been a lot of leaders who have not been that effective or have you know it's gone to their head or they've abused their authority and a lot you know it's 
it's been too male, it's been too white, it's, you know, not obviously in the black movement, but, you know, there are all kinds of reasons historically to, uh, to point fingers at, at, at past leaders. But, you know, what I think history shows is, you know, effective social movements require both things. They need, they require grassroots energy um, uh, and, you know, people, you know, boots on the ground, but also uh, leadership from the top. Um, smart, strategic, um, uh, clear, clear uh, in the messaging. Uh, and also I would argue um, selfless. Um, and I think when you look back at, uh, at Dr. King, uh, when you look back at Malcolm X, um, you see leaders who had everything I'm talking about, but also were not in it for themselves and who, who, who showed that uh, to, to their followers. And I would argue that, you know, unfortunately, since, uh, since that, th those two men, um, all too often, the leaders that the media fixates on uh, haven't always sort of shown that ability vis-a-vis -vis their followers to really show that, um, you know, that, that um, they're not in it for themselves, they're not in it for the money or the glory uh, or the publicity uh, that, um, you know, they're, they, they, they really just are, are, are men and women of the people. Mark Whitaker, former editor of Newsweek, former Washington bureau chief for NBC News and author of Saying It Loud, 1966, The Year Black Power Challenged the Civil Rights Movement. Thank you so much for coming to Capehart on Washington Post Live. Thanks for the great conversation. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Capehart. It's produced by Nick Roberts. We'll have new episodes for you every Tuesday. I'm Jonathan Capehart. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.